Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Row Crop Short Course on the campus of Mississippi State in Starkville. Tom and I are at the Short Course. we got our podcast stuff with us. We're going to catch some sponsors, I guess, tomorrow, Tom. And uh, But today... We have two very, very special guests, Dr. Larry Steckel. Larry, you've probably been on here more than anybody else outside <laughs> of Mississippi State, just for proximity, and I appreciate your perspective yeah. on everything. And then we have the legend, Stanley Culpepper from the University of Georgia. Stanley's never been on with us before, usually because Stanley's too busy to trifle with in a, in a Georgia pullover, yeah, I should with, add that he uh, probably had chosen in hopes of the fact that they'd be playing for the national championship again. I have to get that little barb shit. in there. I know. Man, <laughs> Tom, <laughs> Tom just I know. nails it. Bring the fire. I'm kind of surprised he's not packing up and leaving right well, now. Well, I, 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 I did duck when I went through Tuscaloosa. Okay, I did duck. <laughs> But it was planned to not go the way it went, right? So this is this is Monday at the short course. So this is two days after the SEC championship. Sorry, dude. It, which would which would be our national championship? Those of us in the South that are football fans, it's just we'll just call it what it is: it's SEC national championship game. But Stanley, thanks so much for coming, man. Absolutely. Uh, I, you, you've been over here before. It's been a number of years since you came to the short course. Have you ever been in this building? This is where it was at. Um, okay. It's been a while, like you said, but it's a great show. Y'all have a tremendous number of uh, attendees and a lot of growers. So uh, kudos to, to your team uh, and everybody that works to put this great show together to share really important information. And, Larry, I guess you come down here about every other year. We try not to bother you yeah, every single year. Yeah, about year. every other year. <laughs> I think it's the best meeting of the year. For us here in the Mid South, I I enjoy coming. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, I come about every other year. We enjoy having you all in like this facility. Although we had the usual conversation again, where do we go if this gets any larger? Again this morning, which is something I think we continue yeah. to have on a regular basis. Growth problems are good problems, I guess. <clears throat> Standing when, when we do these, especially when we have people like you that, you know, are out and about and doing stuff in the field, a question that I like to ask, and I've already I've asked Larry this in the past, I've asked other people this in the past. You've been doing this a lot longer than I have, maybe like three years or something longer than I have. But, so this is a long time you've been doing it. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen when you've gotten called to a field in the state of Georgia? Wow. So I would say my number one was actually a visit with a – a doctor, a medical doctor, about arsenic poisoning from MSMA. And I don't want to go any further than that because I, I don't want to be pulled into the situation. But <laughs> I get it. Um, yeah. it, let's just say someone was given arsenic in a way that connects with agriculture, right? So crazy stuff. And then, of course, another one that was good with me, I didn't have an absolute clue, was uh, weed management and mushroom production, right? So uh, that's the world that we all live in, right? You can't dream this stuff up. But uh, it is always something going all the time. There's- I debated on asking you that, and my backup question was, what was in your mind when you all found that first Roundup-resistant pigweed? And, and then I decided I was more interested in hearing the yeah. crazy thing. Yeah, the one you didn't ask is way more entertaining. <laughs> for, well, we got time. For, for lay, me. Lay it on. <laughs> well, well, you know, you know, you go out and you say, Farmer Joe, you screwed something up. 
let's figure out what you did wrong. And then, you know, after we do all the work that we do to document and confirm Come to find out he didn't. <laughs> yeah, then you have to go bow down and say, uh, you didn't do anything wrong with your application procedures, maybe in your management program up to that point. But as far as uh, you can't kill this pigweed with glyphosate, it took quite a while. But, man, I, I, I had to run it like three or four times before I would even say anything to the great Dr. York, which was my previous advisor uh, just prior to that. So, believe it or not, I told Larry this. It's been 20 years ago. 20 years ago this fall is when we found that first glyphosate-resistant Palmer amaranth. Wow, that's a long time. It doesn't seem like that long. Coincidentally, our brand-new extension director got out of town right before they found that. Angus was working for Monsanto. He was covering that territory. I think he moved back over here the same year that y'all found that. Just not going to say anything. Well, no, it was just, it was just, a, it's just a fact. Point being, Angus didn't have to deal with it uh, because he was back over here by that point as an entomologist and not working for Monsanto with Roundup, support Roundup. Well, and Jason did want me to preface this, that we're recording this in December, but we'll definitely have content that could be changed by the time we get to the spring. But from what Stanley indicated, that, that would probably be the earliest that that would happen. What Tom's referring to is Stanley's going to talk about I guess his knowledge, which is more than anybody else's knowledge that I know of, on the current EPA strategy is not the right word because they have the herbicide strategy, but the new procedure for reviewing herbicides, labeling herbicides in light of applying the concepts in the Endangered Species Act. Is that accurate, Stanley? Yeah, basically so. When all, all products from really last year forward go through a registration or re-registration process, they will be in line of the laws required by the Endangered Species Act. Uh, that's really what is occurring, and it's uh, occurring at a very fast pace. I think last year we had the late Don Parker that's right. in with us, and Don, no offense, may know more about it than you do, Stanley. He absolutely uh, did. Uh, I absolutely. mean, in- incredible. And so Don kind of summarized everything for us and that that has been a while back so why don't you or larry or or both give us just a a brief history on how we got to where we are right now with the endangered species act because it's it's not a new thing i'll give you a little bit of background so believe it or not 1973 so 50 years ago is actually when the endangered species act was uh, proposed and passed by congress and that act basically defined legislation that uh, require the protection of endangered and threatened species, and and very important for this group here, the habitat of those species. So it might be a bee, it might be a butterfly, but it's not only the bee and the butterfly, it's the plants that those bees and butterflies need to survive, right? And at that time, basically, the EPA was formed, right, 1971-1972, and you're talking about this act occurring in 1973, really driven historically from some of the issues that we had with DDT, some of those, those other issues to make sure that we're protecting wildlife, but we're providing tools for agriculture, feeding the world, you know, providing the food, feed, and fiber. And what really happened for about 48 years was not a lot. But then about two or three years ago, there were different groups that realized, well, when the US EPA is registering or re-registering a pesticide, they're really not in compliance with that statute, the Endangered Species Act, right? And once our products started being taken to the court system, things were not going well for us, right? So if a group was to sue the EPA on a given product and they go to the court system 
And they say, well, the EPA is not meeting the requirements of the Endangered Species Act. And the judge looks at the EPA and says, are you meeting the requirements of the Endangered Species Act? And they say, no, right? Then the potential registration or re-registration of all of our products are in serious trouble. In fact, about 95% of our products today are vulnerable until we get them through the ESA process. When we say ESA, that's just uh, Endangered Species Act. So that's, that's a little bit of background of, of where I'm at. But it, all of us talk all the time about resistance, 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 and herbicide resistance is still huge. But at least sitting here today, the potential challenges in the regulatory environment that's currently occurring, I think pose potentially pose a greater risk than even resistance to our ability to remain sustainable on the family farm, which, of course, without the family farm, 86% of U.S. ag products come from family farms, not corporate farms. But without the family farm, you know, you don't have the food, feed, and fiber for the world. Now, I'll throw another tidbit I love to share with. Uh, Every farm today feeds 166 people for a year. You and I do impact statements, and we think we're important, but the impact statement for agriculture is just absolutely unprecedented. But they have to have the tools that they need if they're going to preserve our way of life. Talking to Bird just a little bit before this, and I'm sure we're going to drop these a little different, and that's the listeners realize that. But when when Bird talked about you know rotating herbicide chemistries, and that's something we need to do in all pesticide application programs is rotate those active ingredients. What you're saying there, Stanley, I mean, basically threatens that whole entire premise because it's not registration of new products; it's registration and re-registration of the old products. That's exactly what Bird talked about and exactly what we all talk about. So that imposes a, a mighty big challenge. Yeah, my understanding is supposed to be like no impact. So even if it's like quadrus or headlines drifted on a, like in Tennessee, we've got the Spring Creek bladder pod. It's an endangered species. You can argue it might help it, but that's <laughs> that would still be a problem. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember is this is 95% of, of pesticides, not herbicides, not fungi. It's, it's all of them. So when you think about that toolbox, and, and Larry talks about all the time about, hey, I've got to have tools in the toolbox, where if you're already losing a lot of tools to resistance, right, and now you start either losing the tool completely or you might lose what I call practicality of the tool. Let's go, for example, a 300-foot infield buffer you lose all practicality of the tool, right? So it's functionally unusable. Functionally unusable. You can't continue to feed the world if you're sitting there looking at that. So we have these two mighty issues to, to deal with, but our toolbox is in serious trouble. Now, the positive, at least where I'm optimistic, most people are not, but the, the positive of where we're at with the Endangered Species Act, the EPA has shared a, a lot of information of what they think, but they've asked for our thoughts, right? And our thoughts have to require a lot of science, But we're providing a lot of our thoughts in a lot of ways, and we really, really have to be engaged. And that's from every listener you've got to every scientist to everybody has to be engaged to help them come up with reasonable solutions. Now, again, a farmer might come up with a solution that doesn't have science, but that's our job, right? We go get the science to support that potential solution, and and then we work with the EPA to get that in part of the, the process. But we have to be engaged. Stakeholders have to be engaged. We have to be involved. We have to make sure that the people that are regulating understand us, what we do, how we do it, why we do it, right? This concept that we just go out and spray, right? We think that's insanity, but that is not what is is thought about much of the general population, right? So 
we have to be engaged. We have to generate the right science, and we have to work together, or we're in very, very, very serious trouble. Well, and the hard part is you're hitting a time of the year where I think people wind down, and the farming community doesn't want to put a lot of effort into computer-based things. I mean, let's, let's face it. When, when we have those conversations about what's the best way to get in touch with you, in a lot of cases, they don't want to respond to emails. But answering those comment periods on these types of situations are excruciatingly important and will be more so moving forward. And they're the people from the farming community that need to make those comments. Absolutely. I would say this. Imagine if you or I are sitting at a cubicle at the US EPA. We're really, really smart. We're probably young today, <laughs> unlike myself, but they're, they're young, right? And they're making decisions that determine our future. Who would you want information from in agriculture-wise more than the actual farmer, the person that relies on the tool, needs the tool, right? So there's no doubt they have made a very, very aggressive effort to get out among the states. They've been to Mississippi. They've been to Georgia. Uh, they've been to Tennessee, right? They are getting out. They want to hear from the stakeholder. They want to hear from our farmers. We, as, as university-type specialists, have to be a conduit to, to put them together, to let them have the really good conversations because if – and I hope when we make it through endangered species, and again, it's too early to tell how bad it's or good it's going to be. It won't be good, but how bad it's going to be. We have to stay engaged. We have to communicate what we're doing while we're doing it. And then once my experience has been, once any of these regulators get to meet any of my farmers, they're absolutely floored, absolutely floored. Man, these people love the land, right? It's part of their family. They love the people that work for them, right? It's, they're part of their family. And when they get out and they see how hard we're working and how challenging agriculture is, most of the time they realize then, okay, let, let's work together and find a solution. Because there's a solution. There is an absolute solution. Remember, the, the goal of the Endangered Species Act is basically to protect the wildlife. This is what we do every day as agriculturalists, right? It's absolutely what we want to do. Right? So if we're not doing something that's absolutely perfect and some science can make us better, who's going to jump on it? We're going to jump on it. We're going to adopt it. We want to be better. It's our kids and our grandkids running around on the farm. Right? We're not going to just apply pesticides anywhere. It makes no sense. We can't stay in business, and we care too much about the environment. But we have to do this in a, in a very strategic way using good science and having engagement by all of your listeners. I mean all of your listeners. And I, I get in trouble for saying this some. But this is not 1985. We can't rely on people that love agriculture in Washington, D.C. to take care of us. It, it just doesn't happen anymore. We have to take care of ourselves. And I think the best way to take care of ourselves, obviously, is to be engaged, work together. But science, people respect science in the regulatory agencies. They truly respect science. Maybe the court system doesn't, but the, the, the agencies that will determine our future, at least with the pesticide tools we do, they have a great respect like we do for science. So I think that's an avenue that we have, that we can have a tremendous impact and show, again, how hard we work to, to steward the environment, protect the wildlife, protect the consumer, protect the user, right? That is what we're about. Two hypothetical scenarios. We won't put names to it. We'll just call them herbicide A and B. But Step through the process and say one makes it through the process and then contrast that with the other one that would not make it through the process. And what, is that, what does that process look like and then what does the outcome look like? Well, so that's a, that's a good question, but it's, it's really 
extremely complex that we could spend over an hour to talk about it. And you would understand this because when you start talking about chemistry, right, water solubility, volatility, all of these things that maybe your listeners aren't, aren't that interested in. But the, the characteristics of the herbicide A versus herbicide B obviously has a huge role. Also, efficacy of herbicide A and B have a huge role, right? Let's say you have herbicide A that's a residual that's not very active at, say, rates that get off the field. Well, if it doesn't pose a threat to that wildlife, that product would have a greater chance of going through versus if you have something that's potentially highly damaging. Let's be honest, glyphosate is going to be the greatest challenge for us. There's no doubt whatsoever. Uh, we've got to make some great progress, in my opinion, by 2026. If we're not there, we're in serious trouble. Now, with that said, a lot of other tools are there, there also there. But if you'll remember, what was it, Larry, two or three years ago, EPA actually came out and said 97 8%, of the endangered species are vulnerable to glyphosate. glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so, again, that, that's a complicated question, but the chemistry itself, and then think about use patterns. Use pattern in cotton is totally different than a use pattern in tomato, right? We have some herbicides that are used in both, right? So, so it is so dynamic, and it's so complex, and that's one of the, the challenges that we're all fighting together, and when I say all scientists, regulators, uh, e- even the political realm, that, again, supports agriculture, so understands the, the need for us to be able to feed the world, right? So... It's just a, such a dynamic scenario because you have 1,800 or so endangered slash threatened species that changes every day, and then you got 900 or so critical habitats. We have to figure out how to protect all of that. But most importantly, in my opinion, you have to protect agriculture, right? Who provides the habitat for the species? You could argue there are a lot of federal lands out west, but in our part of the world, the habitat is provided by agriculture, Right, So if you do something to protect the wildlife that destroys agriculture, you have inadvertently destroyed agriculture because we're going to put a gas station up or we're going to put a housing complex up. Right, it's We're losing over 200 acres of farmland every hour. While we're hearing today, USDA numbers, 200 acres every – that is the greatest threat uh, to any of our species. So we have to protect agriculture. And at the same time, we have to protect these species, right, not only because it's the right thing to do but because it is the law. But, again, if we work together – and, and, we, and we get our ducks in a row, and we get science in front of decisions. Agriculture doesn't lose to decisions made from science. Agriculture loses when decisions are made without science. And you might say, well, why does that happen? Well, sometimes Washington, D.C. is forced to make a decision, and they make the decision on the best science that they have, which sometimes means they don't have really good science. We would have to do the same thing as scientists, right? So I'm not knocking anybody. But when we have good science, at least throughout my 24-year career, especially in the world of, of pesticides, when the science is there, the right decision is ultimately made, right? The problem is with ESA, decisions are being made so quickly to try to get us out of the court system, which we must get out of the court system, but it's being made so quickly, we don't have the ideal science we may need to make to make good decisions, which equals overly conservative decision-making, right? And you've seen that. You see that, in my opinion, with the Extendamax and Ingenia and Tavium ESA buffers. You see that with Enlist, at least Enlist Duo for me. I think Enlist One has some counties that it can't be used in, right? You, you see that as a result of having to make decisions very quickly. And if we don't get the science right, that's just going to continue pesticide after pesticide after pesticide after pesticide. Those deadlines were set by losing court cases, right? So that's what's drawn all this and why it's all come to a head like this year. 
Larry's absolutely right. If, if we don't get this done on the timeline, believe it or not, the DOJ agreed to, and the DOJ had to agree to it because we lost, well, I shouldn't say we, the, the registrants lost the mega suit, right? That mega suit is set every timeline. Everything this year when the Vulnerable Species Pilot Project information was provided, that was following the timeline from the lawsuit agreement. Herbicide strategy was released on a timeline that was defined in the agreement from the DOJ on herbicide strategy, right? Rodenticides, then insecticides, and then fungicides. It is all laid out for us. The problem is there's not enough time to get the science. We're still identifying the science we need, and then we need, as you guys know, we need years to not only um, help make ourselves comfortable with our own research, but get our colleagues to repeat it and show it's repeatable in time and space, right? So uh, it's really a it's a dilemma of the time component to get the science to make great decisions is there. Now, part of your life, your entire lives has been what happens? A registration or a re-registration, there's some kind of requirement that's thrown on the product. It impacts your grower. So then after the fact, you go out and you do work and you address it, right? And then we often can get it fixed based on sound science. But that cart horse thing, right? It, it sure would be nice to get the science before making the decision versus what we historically do is make the decision. It hurts agriculture. And then we come together and we go generate a bunch of science and go back in and try to solve the dilemma that was caused years previously, right? And, and that's where we're heading uh, if we can't come together and work together and come with a reasonable solution. My question about those two herbicides, I guess a different way to ask it, certainly a better way to ask it would be, at the point that we, we end up with some version of all this in place, give us an example of what would prevent a commonly used herbicide in 2023 from not being able to be used in some years in the future. So again, it goes with what is proposed or what we're hoping will come out. So I don't know that your viewers want to go read herbicide strategy. It's about 975 pages and You'd have to look up about every third <laughs> word what it means. Right? And even the summary is incredibly complicated. <laughs> it, it is insane, right? So, so again, if you want to laugh, you, you know, go look at that. But if you look at what is proposed, and I, I say this with the EPA in the room, so I don't mind saying it. If you look at what's proposed with Vulnerable Species Pilot Project or you look at what's proposed with Herbicide Strategy, if it goes through, we're done. None of our products can make it through. So your A versus B, it doesn't matter right. because we're in serious trouble. Now, I'm optimistic again. We're going to work together, and what's proposed will look nothing like the final herbicide strategy or vulnerable species because I, I'm hopeful decisions will be made on better science, more available science and the things that we're doing. So what could potentially happen, right, it depends on where you – if you go through from proposed all the way to – over to the far right where I'm just super optimistic that we're going to come to some kind of really scientific solution, right? It depends on where you end up in the middle, right? Because you're hopefully not going to end up on their side and, and probably not going to end up where I would like to be. But if you end up in the middle, it, it'll, it'll depend exactly on, on what's there. Because again, these are just some steps and, and I'm working around your question and not answer your question because I don't know it can be answered, right? You, you have to look at the math. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to ask the hard questions. Well, you have, to, you have to, first of all, when you think about this product, what species does it impact, right? And then the fair question is, do you know where the species is located, right? If you don't know where the species is located, which is a realistic thing, then, right, we have the right to know where they're at. So let's do some work and figure out exactly where the species is located. Then the next question is, do you know where my farm fields are that I'm treating with the pesticide? Well, in theory, USDA has some really, really good data, but they're, 
there are what we call some spurless pixels that represent supposed farm fields that aren't farm fields, right? Why is it important to know where the farm field is and where the species is at? Because it's really about overlap, right? Where does the farm field you treat with a pesticide overlap with that species? If they don't overlap, then herbicide A and B, you get to keep using them. If they do overlap, well, maybe they overlap and we can implement a mitigation strategy, right? So the, the reason I can't answer your question is because I am hopeful that it will change dramatically. We will know where the species is at. We will know where the farm fields are at. Keep in mind, I beat on our registrant partners all the time. We need label reform monumentally, Larry, and I've been yeah. on this forever, right? We need accurate use rates, right? If you look at vulnerable species document, they're assuming a use rate of 6.4 pounds active ingredient of diuron in a single application. Right. If you were to put 6.4 pounds of, you wouldn't have a crop, but think about how much product's moving off target, right? That is a tremendous higher rate than what we practically do. So practical use rates, practical use patterns have to go into the modeling process the EPA uses to predict how much uh, potential injury or harm we cause to these species off the field, right? Then do we know how sensitive an endangered species is to a given pesticide? I mean, if Larry's treating them on the side, we're going to put him in jail, right? So we, we don't know how sensitive these species are. And then sometimes we might use, for example, soybean to represent an endangered species that's not related to it at all for dicamba, right? So they're going to use a worst-case scenario. So, again, we need surrogate species. And then after you figure all that out, man, that's when you start working all the mitigation components, right? And you've done a lot thinking about the mitigation components. How do you get your mitigation points? How do you fit under the guidelines that you're going to have certain uh, requirements to follow with spray drift, right? you got spray drift mitigation you're going to have to implement. Every one of us is going to have to do it. You've got runoff erosion mitigation that you're going to have to implement, and that's where you're talking about. You're going to be required on some products like, say, dual magnum, esmetolacor, you're going to have to get to a 9. The EPA came up with a scale. I don't think the scale will change. You have to get to a 9 in mitigation strategies and implementing that. You know, for example, cover crops you might have. Right now they're only allowing 1.4 cover crop, right? So, so they have a different mitigation list. They have a certain list uh, of points for that list. We have to be engaged. We need more options on there, and we need more points uh, for some of them, again, like cover crops, the theory that they're only going to give one, which they define as low impact, where three would be high impact for a cover crop, to me, lacks any scientific it merit. It does. Isn't right. that crazy? In our part of the world where we can grow a cover crop that's got a lot of biomass, it makes no sense. I mean, we It ought to be three or four. Yeah, yeah. it can't go higher than a three, but it yeah. ought to be a nine. Yeah. If you need a yeah. nine, that's all you ought to have. But but that's where we're at. We're at, we're at a different scale on that. So. So when you look through that process of everything that has to happen to answer your A and B, man, it's, it's almost impossible to do. And, again, what's got us stuck is this, um, this timeline. We can answer this, right? There's nothing I've said that we all as scientists can't work together and address. But what we can't do is we can't address it by March of 2024, right? Wow. You can't do Just it. Just a few months. That wasn't in my mind when I asked that question originally, but I think you make the point that it under the current propositions it's impossible and there's no way of doing a clear comparison in any kind of concise manner because it like you said it's 900 something pages and you got to get in theory got to get through all 900 something of them to make sense out of the final product and it's impossible particularly in light of the fact that you've got this unfortunate convergence of epa and doj doj is not worried about the science right 
They're just not. They can't afford to be. Right. That's right. And EPA really can't afford to not be worried about the science because then they back everybody into a corner that they honestly don't want to back anybody into, regardless of the general perception of government agencies in general being against, in this case, farmers, which they're not. And my experience, just like what y'all said, was very positive in our interactions with those groups when they visited our state. Very positive. And, and everyone else's perception of that group was the same. To a fault, they were very receptive to everything that, that we had to say and, and, more importantly, everything that the growers that they interacted with had to say. Yeah, that was a very positive visit to Tennessee we had with them as well. So I, I'm glad we all did it. I think it, <laughs> education and, and trying to get them up to speed on what our growers challenges are like stanley said and still growing a crop while trying like in our part of the world no-till is so important and we were trying to drive that you know we've got to keep a no-till system or we'll lose all our fields that was one of the big things we were pushing and everybody's going to have different options because in the delta you're going to have a lot different issues than what we have with our rolling hills and what you do with all your myriad of crops you've got to got to raise so well stanley mentioned diuron and our catfish growers use diuron in ponds. When the EPA visitors came and visited, they were under the impression that those ponds were getting treated and then that water was getting released downstream. Well, that water doesn't get released downstream. Uh, certainly after you haven't, you've invested a, a treatment in it, we're definitely not going to release it downstream. And it was, it was very enlightening for them because some of them, a few of them, had some experience with row crop agriculture, but none of them had ever seen a catfish growing operation. I mean, it's just, it's very unique to our part of the world. That is a perfect example of why we have to be engaged, you know, with these individuals. Again, I will fight anybody that says the EPA scientist is not working hard to to get the decision right. But when you're making a decision and you truly don't understand what, what even the concept of what we do is, right? Every single one of our farms, every farm is, is different in some way. Every single farm across America is different in some way. But having them to get out and have the opportunity, to a perfect example, to, to see the pond, uh, it's eye-opening. And it's stuff that they respect, and they take it back, and they, they implement that into the decision-making. That's why we've done a really good job the last two years. But prior to that, really, Don Parker, you yeah. mentioned Don earlier, he's the only guy that's really done that prior to the last couple of years. Now, we're, we're, we're pretty aggressive on that now, but – Kudos to, to what Don oh, has yeah, done. Yeah, we really miss him. He's, he was a big impact on, on that and a lot of things. What has the Weed Science Society as a group, folks like us as an organization, what have they done to help EPA and to try to help move this process forward? Well, probably the last thing I did as the president was sucker Stanley into running for it, so he's more <laughs> up to speed on it than I am. So uh, it's going on, but uh, I think WSSA has done a wonderful job taking the lead on – on trying to get comments in and all the interaction and, and trying to get the EPA up to speed on, you know, the cutting edge science on, on this. And uh, I know like st- stuff that Taylor's doing on just trying to shrink the footprint of uh, some of these habitats, you know, cause we, in Tennessee, we've got enda- the spring Creek bladder pod, it's endangered species. So it takes out the whole County of Warren County. Well, the spring Creek, Flatter pod is along the Spring Creek. <laughs> That's the only environment it's in. It's a it's a narrow little spot of that whole county, but the whole county you can't spray anything uh, at this point. So uh, you know things like that. Like Stanley said, we can't. She can't do it tomorrow. 
so Larry is exactly right. Larry took huge advantage of me, put me into <laughs> I the, did. to the board rotation. <laughs> he really did. I can't tell the story on radio because it would be bleeped out, right? So it was really bad. And I'll get I'll get him it's and a, Scott Sensman one day. I'll yeah, get them both. But but job. the very first ten minutes of of my presidency of the We Science Society of America, we formed our ESA committee. And there are two reasons I formed the committee. Number one, because I knew how big a topic was. This is two years ago now. This is when most people were just maybe starting to hear about it. But that was number one. But number two, we have a WSSA member, Bill Chisholm, that actually worked over 20 years in EPA bead. And he was willing to be the committee chair, right? So I knew when I had him as the chair and I could form the committee, what they have done has been dynamic. They are actually, believe it or not, you know, we have a lot of very active Committees, believe it or not, we, we talk outside America has 45 committees, <laughs> believe it or not. But uh, we have some very active ones. But this one is now, without a doubt, the most active because of Bill Chisholm. Their, their presentations given by this committee and the group, Bill's the leader. Every comment period, the WSSA is commenting with science uh, to represent all of that. You know, we have members that are organic, non we're represent we're representing science, and that's what this committee does. It doesn't represent a specific niche within it. It's here's the science, here's where we can provide information on herbicides. You're making decisions based on herbicide strategy. So in my opinion, and I don't mean to to insult entomologists or path, plant pathologists, we're light years, light years more involved than they are. And I think if you ask the EPA, the EPA will tell you the same thing. You know, last year, uh, Jake Lee, who is basically one of the very top at the EPA, I, I always call him uh, the one that's essentially in charge of decision-making currently with ESA. He was our guest speaker at the We Science Society's annual meeting. So, right, it's all about engagement. It's all, all about working together. But we do have a, a wonderful committee that is working very aggressively in the part of science. We've got two additional committees going now. You know, label reform is big with us, but we see that as part of ESA, right? And then identifying exactly where our farm fields, that committee is 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 working on some of that, and, and you guys are, are engaged with that as well. So the Weed Science Society of America is, is really, really, I think, very engaged with providing information, science, science-based information. Our target for our podcast Growers, number one, but then consultants, retailers, basically anybody involved in production agriculture. So what do y'all say to somebody that falls into those categories about the unknown of 2024, but then 2025 and beyond, too, in light of the discussion we've had this morning? One thing to me is staying engaged. So I don't know if there's any more open comment periods coming, or there may be some in the future, but getting on with those and just simple things. Um, and we had a good discussion with, with a lot of the registrant or uh, the EPA uh, folks and state regulators here this summer. And simple things our farmers brought up aren't being taken into account, like swath control. Everybody has swath control, but it isn't on there as a, as a possible option to, as, as a mitigation option. Uh, you know, simple things that they're already doing, things like that can really help on any kind of comments um, that they, they can make. So I'd say there are two things that I challenge every one of my growers, consultants, extension agents. Number one, you have to take the responsibility of putting the pesticide you apply on target and making sure it stays on target. That is your responsibility. If we do not do that, we will not have a toolbox, period, period. Now, this is not the case for every single one of us, but 
almost all of us, we do not have endangered or threatened species in our agricultural fields. Now, again, you get Bowman over here. He's going to disagree. He's got, he's got one. But most of us do not have these species in our field. So if we can put the product in the field, keep the product in the field, and then those of us as scientists prove that that is happening, that is a powerful, powerful leg to stand on. And it begins with the person applying the product. It has got to go on target. Again, this ain't 1985. We have got to step up. Number two, Larry's exactly right. If you don't understand when we talk about spray drift mitigation or runoff erosion mitigation, you're not sure what that means right now, you need to reach out to your extension people, your specialists. You need to get engaged on what has been proposed and what we could potentially add to that list. We have got to have your input, especially if it's something you're already doing that doesn't cost additional money, but it works in keeping a product in a field, whether it's spray drift or, or runoff erosion. We've got to get more things added to that list. EPA has said we want to add things to that list, but you got to bring us the science that supports the mitigation practice works, right? And although we think we have a lot of great ideas, man, these farmers come up with things we ain't dream of, right? So that is what we need from every single person that's running in the field. But I cannot stress enough, if you do not respect the importance of these tools and you're not willing to make the effort to put them on target, then we're done. We're done. There's no doubt. I was just going to say, I think the fungicide group now has an open comment period, if I'm not mistaken. Those emails have started to trickle down. At least I've gotten some of those the last few weeks. So those comment periods are open, and people really need to take the time to make constructive comments that are helpful in those particular situations because I have skimmed some of those comments. And a lot of what's on there is just copied and pasted from multiple people making the same statements that in a lot of cases do not apply to what is actively going on field well, some of them look just like robots i mean i yeah i read them y'all have too but it's they can tell when it's from a farmer or from them and those they take they really stay and, and they want your name yeah and and that's i mean so don't make some just crazy statement that doesn't make any sense yep. i mean they're truthful honest short sweet to the point statements and some of the letters that are on there by organizations and it's, i was just over here jotting notes about i need to contact our representative who's involved in that and ask him what's the role of our professional society because I have a feeling they don't typically like to make statements similar to what the WSSA would which is discouraging from where I sit as a scientist guys we appreciate it Stanley you came the furthest so uh, we appreciate you driving over and have a safe trip going home again we're recording this in december and and it may be february we hadn't decided exactly yet when we're going to release it but it may be february so if it is y'all humor our conversation about stanley's team laying an egg in sec championship Hey, with that Orange Bowl, man, that's a big deal. That's, that's a big deal to get invited to play in the Orange Bowl. You got to walk all over FSU based <laughs> on how they played Louisville. Just you know, and, uh, and Larry, man, it's always a pleasure. Oh yeah, uh, always. We always enjoy having you on. I'm and, glad uh, you had Stanley here because he he can answer these questions a lot better than anybody I know can. So he's done a great job. We appreciate it. Safe travels. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.